Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are diving into the noir tales of the Mississippi River area of the Northern Ozarks. The Mississippi River brought more than supplies to the settlers uh, in the Ozarks. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and about any other podcast platform. So what is not so obvious that the river brought to the Ozarks? Mississippi River was always central to expansion and trade in the region. And some very famous people came through uh, in roles that you may not be familiar with. Also, there's some very interesting lore, some of it pretty dark. We'll pick up with, with the dark history and lore in a minute, but first we want to invite everyone to like, follow, etc. Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, plus we encourage you to follow the podcast. Uh, we would like to invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook, on the Dark Ozarks Facebook page. Click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for $4.99 a month. And come with us on investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spooklight. Join today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and food in a historical building with a noir pass. And yes, this one's also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. I'm ready to go back to both. But tonight, we're talking about things going on on the opposing uh, (laughs) side of the Ozarks and dealing with uh, Northern Ozarks and the Mississippi River, which of course brings us to places like St. Louis, um, St. Charles, Missouri. And interestingly enough, just because of the historical, cultural and folkloric connections, uh, Cahokia, the Cahokia Mounds and Alton, Illinois. Yes. (laughs) and it goes back a long ways a lot further than people think uh in history it does 
It very much does. And you and I had the opportunity to go on an investigation and uh, survey uh, several locations in that area last spring. It was mm -hmm. a great opportunity to get over there. And just as a geographical note, a good chunk, I would say about a third of the St. Louis Metro is geologically within the Ozarks. Yes. And it may surprise a few people that part of that the Ozarks geologically actually jumped the Mississippi and and uh, part of Illinois is included. They do. Now is it is a strict interpretation. There is a, a portion of, of those Ozark Mountains that are on the other side of the Mississippi River. And what happened at some point eons ago was that the Mississippi River cut through uh, the the geological Ozarks and to yes. create that. What is also interesting, and this goes back to the, for myself, the, the early days of State of the Ozarks and looking at how do we define where are the Ozarks? And you look at uh, geographically, you look at geologically, but you also look at culturally and you look for overlays or points of recession and by recession, I mean recession of culture. The culture recedes and is replaced by something else, uh, or the culture expands into areas that are not strictly Ozarks. And it creates a, a series of moving boundaries on the, the Ozarks um, that include, but is not limited to the strict Ozarks plateau, which is in and of itself massive. And this is one of those great examples because in relationship to the, uh, the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers and in relationship between uh, central Missouri, northern Missouri, and also Illinois, you, you just have a lot of really interesting space. You, you really do. You really do. And um, in a lot of history and, and lore that, um, don't seem to go together, but in some ways make sense. Uh, I don't know about you, but why don't we start with the Piazza bird? I, I think so. Now, <clears throat> the Piazza bird is a, a an important part of our very American folklore. Yes. And it, it is pre-Columbian in its origins. And you can see a rendition of the Piazza Bird just north of Alton, Illinois, on the on the bluffs, on the cliff bluffs, overlooking the the uh, almost the Illinois River. Uh, the Illinois empties right in there. Uh, the Mississippi River. Yes. And this is a significant Native American iconography, from what we can tell, that dates certainly back to the 1760s documentably uh, it is reasonably apparent that it dates back much earlier and it may have been associated with the Cahokia Mound city dwellers the city people um, the mound people and it may have been associated with other tribes uh, possibly including the Illinois uh, or the Peoria peoples so there's a lot that we don't know about the Piazza bird. What we do know it is, is it is a very unique creature. Yes, it is. And, and the version that people 
either if you have seen it or you, you then Google it to see what we're talking about, is different, not only the fact that it's a, a different painting, but a different appearance than the original. Right. <clears throat> and I, th I think in part, a lot of the sort of culture of the last hundred years affected the rendition of the replacement. Um, and honestly, the early accounts of the original painting reminds me in some ways a bit of the Ozark Howler, which is not to say I, that gives it more credibility that the Howler is a real creature. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a, a chimeric quality to these, these creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, there is a, an aspect of <clears throat> one, one type of this animal combined with the type of that animal, um, a fish's tail, a deer's antlers, uh, a tiger's face. Uh, according to Marquette, uh, the in some cases the uh, the cat the the body uh, of a of a of a calf or a bull. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts uh, to this, and there's also the the very interesting reference of the piazza bird being conflated with what was called a water panther. Yes, which um, is sort of a unique concept, but it, it, it is reminiscent of lake monsters around the world, um, really. There's some really, to me, there's just a, a lot of neat pieces coming together. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have our own Piazza Bird who's sharing. Yes, we do. <laughs> my, my, my hat's off to, uh, to Milo, the water panther. Uh, yes, my yes. new nickname. <laughs> yes, my uh, Milo is, for the, of course, on the podcast, you can't see what we're talking about. Milo is, what type of dog do we surmise Milo? Uh, Principally American Foxhound. Yes. And then uh, sometimes a very vocal American Foxhound. Uh, but he yeah. is a sweetheart. He is absolutely a sweetheart. And uh, my, uh, he's, he is one of two mascots at Tarko's Arts. Yeah. And uh, our, our other mascot is currently and thankfully uh, asleep in my bathroom. That would be <laughs> Guy the Basset Hound. <laughs> There's, there, there's the, the concept of the water panther. Now, there are oh, so, so many, many aspects of Piazza that I just kind of want to play with. But mm -hmm. the, I think the first one that really jumps out to me, yes, uh, combinations of creatures into a larger mythological uh, symbol 
have, have existed in, in many cultures for pretty much, you know, throughout antiquity. Mm -hmm. But there is, to me, something deeply resonant and uniquely North American uh, about the Piazza. And it is the, the, the implication of a almost shape-shifting creature, especially if you do conflate it with the water panther. Yeah. There's a lot of different meanings that you can draw from that. The colors, uh, you know, the, the original colors that Marquette reported have their own symbolism. The, the idea that this um, being painted in, in a dominant position on the approaches of the Mississippi River said that this was a huge statement to those traveling the river at the time. And one of the, the biggest uh, opinions, you know, the surmised about this was saying you are entering into this territory. Uh, yes. the, and, and that would imply that this particular people, uh, which may or may not have been the Cahokia Mound Builders, but it's reasonable to surmise that it may have been at one point that it could have been functioning not just as a road sign, but as a warning uh, that this is this particular territory you have been warned. Yes, um, whether warned to stay away, warned that we that they are in control, etc. And um, that makes the most sense to me because. <clears throat> Whoever, whoever painted it went to a lot of trouble to do so, and it would, would not have been easy to have physically accomplished with the nature of the bluffs, particularly at least 600 years ago, if you um, add in the Chinese archives um, that have the records from the Xinghu um, expedition in the 14th century um, that have detailed descriptions of the river, of the area, and of the painting, um, which would indicate that, you know, the painting was there at least that long ago, and who knows exactly how long before. Right, <clears throat> and it's, Backing up for a moment on that, there is the discussed um, 1430 expedition by the Chinese explorer mm -hmm. into what now is believed to be into the into the American Midwest. Yes, um, and uh, there had been some discussion, I know, um, in earlier times that whether or not they had actually made it to North America, that they didn't discount the expedition, but felt maybe they'd ended up somewhere else. Um, but there have been uh, artifacts found along the West Coast that uh, are, are accepted to be tied to that expedition. And then the records of the expedition in the, in the uh, Chinese archives uh, 
are very detailed and match up geographically, that would indicate that they really did get into the interior and at least to the Mississippi. Yes. <clears throat> and to me, I think that is really interesting and exciting because it is a peak beyond the established narrative of history. Yes. Um, and sometimes history is, is established, but we just don't happen to look at it from that viewpoint. It's established in Asia, but sometimes we, in the Anglo world, we are, we are guilty of putting blinders on and if we didn't write it, it doesn't exist. Well, and I, I would say that that is a, an issue innate to most cultures. To an extent, yes. I, I think we, we tend to do that quite a bit, though. It's, uh, it is definitely a, a blind spot that, that occurs. And, and, and I think for, for clarification, one of the things that to me is very important is that these additions or these mm, more complete contextualizations of existing history does not necessarily negate our, you know, our established uh, history itself. Uh, that I can mm, hear a variety of conspiracy theorists angry at me now um, for potentially saying that, but that there's many more things that happen. One of the, the things that we clearly see with um, um, you know, in European expansion to North America after 1500 is not so much that these had to be the first peoples to ever arrive in North America, but this was the first time, particularly with the Spanish Empire, the French Empire, and the rise of Tudor Britain and the Elizabethan expansion, that European powers had enough uh, military and economic uh, force mm -hmm. to move forward uh, rather than, you know, and, and, and do so in very large migratory numbers, particularly from Britain. <clears throat> and to, to do so also in approximate, um, you know, historical structure with uh, the printing press, so there was heavy documentation, there was heavy promotion, uh, and there was really the beginnings of mass media, uh, mass media communication, uh, mass marketing of opportunity, etc. So it's, there, there were many, many firsts uh, beginning in 1492 and moving forward into what we think of as modern history. But that doesn't negate a the, the realistic possibility and sometimes documented reality of many peoples 
not having uh, an economic empire behind them, but still doing really incredible things, notably traversing the Atlantic and Pacific oceans in order to do exploration. And it reminds me of a great bit of lore that is associated with a Welsh expedition ending mm -hmm. up in, in uh, middle, the middle Minnesota. of North America. Yeah, actually Minnesota, if I remember right. And then I believe moving south. Uh-huh. And, and uh, it's very realistic. Uh, um, and it's uh, Prince uh, Maddox, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, someone that obviously had resources, just as in this situation with the Chinese, of course, you had the force of a, a very large economy and government uh, behind the expedition. And uh, the expedition stopped at various islands and so forth through the Pacific and, and uh, was uh, on look for uh, trade routes and so um which they did it's exploit um uh to uh, a great deal um but it also made sense that they got to north america and probably decided that establishing a trade route clear over here with the sparse population relatively that they found probably did not make sense in comparison to some of the other opportunities. And that's and that's reasonable. <clears throat> but it is it is also to me really fascinating how some of these, which would have been certainly at the time or certainly for the individuals involved, monumental effort to to achieve this and yet it has all but passed out of history and certainly has passed largely out of public consciousness and and i think that goes to the fact that uh, so much of what we remember of history is based on the stories that were told mm -hmm. Yes. And it also highlights why it's important to keep telling stories that are not well known because they they get lost over time. They do. They do. And we are by nature a storytelling people. And mm -hmm. it is how we contextualize the world around us. I think it's also one of the reasons that various aspects of our historic narrative uh, elicit such strong feelings. Mm -hmm. That's true. I think so. That it becomes, it is, it is a part, not just the, the story itself, uh, the story exists. And if you're not mm, uh, initiated into its cultural meanings, you could just look at the story and say, why are we arguing about this? But taking a step further, once, once you understand that storytelling is how we contextualize the world around us, the accusation that perhaps the story is unclear or is incorrect is 
really is very difficult at that point to see it objectively because what is then happening is that the person's, the way that they have contextualized the world around them now feels under assault. Yes, and can take it very personally at times. And again, as we talked about just the, the innate tendencies of human beings, it's easy to look down our noses and say, oh, we wouldn't make those kind of mistakes. But human beings, simply by their nature, contextualize the world around us this way. Very much so. And, um, and that's sort of a thing with a lot of the, a theme with a lot of the stories we're talking about tonight of worldviews and, and contextualizing. It, um, I agree. And, you know, one, one of the things that, that I, I really enjoy about our just sort of the, the continuing narratives that we have is that sometimes we, we, we step on the toes of, uh, you know, very, very regional or provincial opinions, but sometimes mm -hmm. we step on the toes of very established academia or, uh, you know, a larger uh, post-colonialist expansionist policy narratives that uh, say, sorry, taking the, uh, you know, the museum to task, oops. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I just enjoy that process because it isn't about uh, one side versus the other. It isn't about uh, class, uh, you know, one, you know, an upper class, lower class. It isn't about that. It is just picking apart, looking at, at the most objective data that exists, picking it apart, uh, putting it back together, and just looking at it from as many perspectives as possible. And, and I enjoy that process as well. And it, I, I think there's always benefit to, to doing that and trying to look at things from another perspective. You also, I, tend, to, you also tend to learn more about yourself that way too. I, I definitely agree with that. And the, the other thing that I think is, is important and just as a sort as a, as a mm, as treatise on the, the subject matter, is that in many cases, the worldview or the world perspective that is associated with particular data points uh, is oftentimes extremely valuable. It's extremely um, warranted for respect, whether or not the, the corresponding and oftentimes very minute historical details that are, that are being defended are correct or incorrect. That's right. <laughs> so, so that was a long way around the block to say, I hear you and I respect you. I may not agree with you, but I hear you and I respect you. And, uh, and, and, and one's contextualization, not only of the world around them, but also of their culture and their history is unbelievably important. Um, it is. It's, it's part of who we are. That being said, we can jump, we, we, I guess we can kind of jump both feet into that exact question that ultimately resulted in a pretty infamous murder in Alton, Illinois. I think that sounds like a good place to jump into. I, as there's as, as a little bit of contextualization, Alton, Illinois is not part of the Ozarks, we discussed that, but it is in immediate proximity. It is directly associated with lots of, lots of historical points that 
clearly affected the Ozarks from the beginning of American history, and uh, not the least of which was uh, General Lyon's uh, removal of the St. Louis Arsenal in the uh, uh, in the uh, very very early days of the Civil War in response yes. to uh, uh, Governor Claiborne and, and uh, Sterling Price and some very notable Missouri State Guard members. And <clears throat> Alton is also, Alton to me is very fascinating. It is a quintessential uh, union, almost, uh, river town. It is, mm -hmm. This is unabashedly a, a traditional Mississippi river town and river port town. Yes. That did at a, certainly at some points in its in its early years, I suspect that its city founders were were thinking it could give St. Louis a run for its money. I, I think I think that probably was, especially since it it actually was at the confluence of the uh, uh, Illinois River and the yeah. Mississippi. Yes. So, very and it should at least be on par i'm sure was there there yeah thinking. i i would think so uh a lot of very interesting illinois infrastructure being in alton um not <laughs> in, in, uh, including a prison uh, which uh, figures heavily i i love alton i think I it's a beautiful town and uh and a neat town to spend time in. It also is known as one of the most haunted towns that you could possibly imagine. And we got to mm -hmm. explore some of that. And as, as you noted, it has a really unique history, particularly in regards to the abolitionist movement. Yes, and at the same time, freedom of the press. It's a good combination. It is, um, and uh, you know, it, it's fairly natural that um, there would be a strong abolitionist uh, presence uh, along, you know, at a river port uh, in Illinois, um, and Alton happened to be probably the most prominent one. And in the 1830s, Elijah Lovejoy was um, a prominent um, figure in the abolitionist movement and also had a newspaper in town, which did tend to uh, strongly advocate abolition uh, views. Yes, and, 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 and strongly rile up the pro-slavery mobs who would come and tear up his newspaper. Yes, and, um, you know, and it should be noted, of course, that Illinois, what, it was a free state at the time. Um, so these would be pro-slavery um, people, some probably in Illinois, but a lot of them coming over from Missouri. Mm -hmm. too. And, you know, he had, uh, Elijah 
Lovejoy had originally started publishing his anti-slavery treatises in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. But uh, because of his abolitionist work, of course, he was doing that in Missouri. Uh, and at that time, Missouri was the slave state. And then he was forced across the river and resettled in Alton in 1836, uh, set up the Alton Observer. And his printing press was then tossed into the river by a pro-slavery mob. And then his mm-hmm. second printing press, the same thing happened. And then his third printing press, the same thing happened. And this continued until, um, interestingly enough, November 7th, um, significant date for me, mm-hmm. uh, in 1837. So we're still dealing with a, a really early point yeah. in this, uh, in this uh, cultural, at the time, cultural and political conflict as opposed to open war. But yeah. you, know, you, you think about this, this conflict going on in 1837, and it would be really 20 years later when we really get into bleeding Kansas. Yeah, so I mean, this is very early in the process. I mean, this is before uh, the abolitionists um, started basically trying to stock Kansas with, with numbers to, for their, uh, for, for voting for uh, no slavery in the, as it became a state. So this really predates a lot of this um, and predates a lot of the violence in the movement that gets more attention like John Brown, et cetera. Um, uh, but uh, ultimately uh, there's a gathering and they're trying to protect the fourth printing press. And, and it should be known too that the, this would have been a significant amount of money involved um, these were, were expensive machines, and at this point, we're, we're going on four printing presses, um, and um, a mob again basically attacks, throws it in the river, and ultimately, Lovejoy is murdered. Yes, <clears throat> in the, essentially in the mob action, he is fatally shot that mm-hmm. night. In November 7th, 1837, he is considered a martyr for the abolitionist movement and a hero of the free press. Yes, and and I think that um, sometimes the emotional tones that still carry with people to argue the politics of the 18, what we think of as the 1860s, but obviously earlier as well, um, overshadows the importance, you know, that uh, of the role of a free press. Um, you know, some people deride whether or not we have one now. Um, but um, at this point in time, it could get you killed. Yes, yes. And I in your mind. Right. Uh, <laughs> as as a, as opposed to just getting trolled. There's a yeah. difference. <laughs> That's a pretty dramatic difference. Something that just was perhaps just personally interesting to me, but uh, Elijah's brother Owen uh, 
was uh, an ardent abolitionist as well, but his homestead, uh, which is now in the National Historic, Historic Landmark, is in Princeton, Illinois, which is on the, is just up on the Illinois River, mm-hmm. uh, not far from where I grew up. And, and he's considered an important um, figure for these activities as well. Yes. Now, I mean, there's, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Uh, just to say the, the, the really strong feelings associated with the abolitionist movement, uh, you know, is, is also combined with the fact that Alton was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And, and it was very strategically located because uh, the slave state was just across the river. Exactly. And uh, it was a step towards going north, towards Canada. And I think one, one thing that people often forget or, or don't realize is why the Underground Railroad went so far north was because at this point in the 1830s and, and well, and until the Civil War, there were laws on the books that um, basically, if a runaway slave was found in a Northern state, they could be taken back. Yes. Um, and so that's why there, there were stops all the way to Canada because that was the only point that they were safe from being remanded back to slavery. It was <clears throat> to essentially to to get out of the country. Yeah, and so there 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 are several. I think that, you know they say up to eight major uh, stops on the Underground Railroad in Alton. We 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 actually saw a couple of them when we were there. Yes, in, yes. including um, the Ennis Apartments, which was a very interesting looking building as well. It is. Uh, which originally was a mansion right and and i think that it is it is fair to say that uh number just like in 20 years later 15 years later uh, many abolitionists were being funded to go to kansas Mm -hmm. uh, that a number of individuals in the 1830s were making very specific financial decisions to establish themselves in Alton because of its strategic location. Well, yeah, I, and for multiple purposes as well. I mean, not, not only just for abolition uh, movement, but as well as for their larger uh, livelihoods and business opportunities as well. Yes, and of course the uh, the penitentiary, which became a prisoner of war uh, camp for the con- mm-hmm. uh, Confederate uh, prisoners of, prisoners of war, and then was the the result of a, an epidemic which killed many of its of, of the prisoners. Uh, much of this is associated with making uh, the. The, the idea is certainly that Alton is extremely haunted. It, it, 
one of the factors, yes. And um, in fact, um, there's a what is called the North Alton uh, Confederate Cemetery, which has a mass grave of the, vit the victims of the epidemics. And it was uh, smallpox, um, mainly smallpox, um, was the cause of death. And um, over 1,300 soldiers um, died and um, are in a mass grave. Uh, though it is now uh, not unmarked, there is a 57-foot-tall stone obelisk um, erected in 1909 and has bronze plates on all four sides, which, which lists the names and units of the um, deceased. Yes. Which so, I think is, is, is very positive and just, you know, it's certainly not something you would necessarily associate with uh, an Illinois cemetery because right. uh, Illinois was obviously a union state, a northern state, and something that I, I do feel happened, and I'm maybe broadly contextualizing, but I also feel that uh, a number of key leaders, potentially including Lincoln, did lead the way in saying unification or reunification of the nation is going to be hard. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to achieve this, we must not continue to fight the war culturally. We need to find ways to connect and and move on in, mm -hmm. with with mutual respect for both sides. Exactly, and I think I think that's I think that's very important even today because you see you see it divisive today and and people view, viewing it almost as a a present tense um, environment versus looking at it in context of its own day and and that's you cannot um, you cannot judge the past the people of the past by um, modern standards or contemporary standards. No matter how much you would like to, and it's easy to and, and it, it's easy to do because it's always easy to put yourself in the situation of that I would not do that or you would hope you would not do that. Yes. But the entire set of circumstances and environment, leads to a situation that um, does not exist today. It, correct. And, and, and really cannot. I mean, the, the modern standards, the contemporary viewpoints that we have that we consider to be uh, appropriate or moral or ethical or however you want to, to cut that, came about as a result of the conflicts and the arguments and the soul searching that went on before. Exactly. It's and but and 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 there are a couple more uh, points in Alton that that really sort of almost highlight that process, including the fact that the final Lincoln Douglas debate happened in Alton. Yes. Uh, October 15th, 1858, um, which um, and in fact, a large portion of the crowd 
was from Missouri and uh, listening to the debate, although it was for two senators, uh, senatorial candidates for Illinois. And um, not only did those debates kind of set the, <coughs> the narrative of the politics over the next few years, um, they it was a it was a illustration, almost an acting out of business interests playing into those politics, particularly the railroad, a bit uh, a a, uh, a bit push that. Douglas had was where to put the Transcontinental Railroad to benefit his investment. And, uh, and that played into the uh, on the ground conflict in Kansas that was starting to play out, had started to play out already as bloody Kansas as this is going on. And mm -hmm. so while you have um, people dying and people and slaves being liberated, good and bad things happening in Kansas and Western Missouri, it's being debated on the other side of the state, just on the other side and all, mm -hmm. all at the same time. It is. And a, a couple of points that come to mind for me with this socio sociopolitical and transitatory uh, milieu that we're dealing with in, in 1858. The first one is the fact that by steamboat and train, uh, individuals came from all over, from, from across Illinois and from num a number of points in Missouri to Alton, likely filled up the town and in order for this to happen. And this steamboat transit, this train travel, comparatively very new, uh, in just in terms of industrialization, the capacity to travel like this uh, had not existed very long before. Mm -mm. And while it's the type of transit, that, that we take for granted today, I don't think we necessarily associate it with the people of this era, the, the mid, mid and early 19th century uh, or earlier 1830s to 1860s of individuals comparatively speaking, much like we are uh, going, okay, now we're, we're going to travel. Uh, we're going to travel <laughs> for business, we're gonna travel for politics, we're gonna travel for, all of these reasons. And to me, that's just really fascinating. Something else that you said that is deeply resonating to me is that we often place ourselves with our contemporary body of knowledge into the past and say, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this instead. I wouldn't have made that bad moral decision. I would have made this good moral decision. And while I, respect fantasy role play. 
I, I think it's very important to classify it as fantasy role play and us projecting ourselves into these points of the past yeah. and, and consistently projecting ourselves as we're the hero. We would, of course, been abolitionists. We would have been making difficult decisions. Uh, we would have been uh, conductors on the Underground Railroad. We would have fill in the blank uh, for whatever right. era. Uh, chances are, no, you wouldn't have. Let's be honest. The individuals who are making those very difficult decisions, which incidentally were going against the law of the land in yeah. so many cases, they were helping someone else's property leave the country um, yeah they were breaking the law in in essence they were making decisions that were not in many cases not popular that had at that time problematic consequence and they're comparatively speaking weren't that many of them that's true. And, you know, and there, there's various examples that go on in today's, uh, you know, environment that um, people look aghast at and, oh my gosh, how can, how can they do that? Um, that's horrible. And yeah. in 150 years, they may be vindicated as having been on the right side of morality. Absolutely. So, and, you and know, you it don't, just, you and don't it, and know. And if you're sitting here, you know, now asking yourself, well, I can't tell. How can I tell? I guarantee you most of the people in the 1850s couldn't tell that either. Exactly. Another place in, in Alton that kind of wraps around these things um, is the writer bill. Yes. Yes. And definitely um, a place I enjoyed. <laughs> yes, and a, <laughs> and a huge shout out to uh, to the building itself. Uh, it is currently a a restaurant uh, titled by the name of um, My Just Desserts. Yes, uh, which is it is a fantastic place to eat, and highly highly recommend it. Dark Ozarks recommends it. Gives the pie five yes. star. Yeah, the pie's good, good sandwiches, etc., um, and good, uh, good cookbooks too. Yes, um, but it, it's interesting because to look at the building, you would have no idea some of the history that had gone on there, um, and I think that's that's one of those things that we often people have no idea what's happened right under their feet, basically. Um, and uh, this is a this is a building that, ironically, in the first half of the 1800s, was the courthouse. Yes. And um, you know, Abraham Lincoln um, practiced law there. He gave a speech there, actually, in support of William Henry Harrison. Um, as well as it is believed that it is the site of the murder trial um, of members of the mob for the Elijah Lovejoy murder. Um, it did not result in a conviction. And that's, some people might be astonished at that, but it, it, it seems that a lot of times when there, there is uh, mob violence, you, you 
look at different cases, a lot of those situations, conventions did not come through. And I think a couple of reasons. One, I think it's in the frenzy, it's, it's hard to objectively be able to prove who the quote guilty parties were and weren't. And two, on a practical level, if you have a large crowd and oftentimes, unfortunately in these situations in the past, um, there generally were a, a number of influential people involved um, organizing that um, it would become difficult if you start convicting some, you'd convict everybody and sometimes you'd end up convicting half the town. And um, what do you do then? And that's that's a very uncomfortable proposition that people wrestle with, but unfortunately those things happen. They do, <clears throat> they do. And it's, but it's, it is an amazing building with so much history. But again, very easy to walk by without realizing all the things that took place. That's right. That's right. And then I guess we should do a shout out to um, Mineral Springs Inn. Yes, the hotel, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is a fantastic location. Of course, that uh, Mineral Springs in the hotel is where we did our investigation. Yes, and there's there's a there are a number of businesses that uh, are there on on the first floor that you can shop at. Uh, there are ghost tours. There are there's a basically a museum there, um, yes. and if you ghost hunt, you can um, book private investigations, um, and it was quite an eventful night so we we do uh, highly recommend we we do uh for anybody who is asking themselves is this particular location haunted it has been featured a number of times um in various shows etc is it is it hype is it actually haunted our opinion it is very much haunted yes yes we we, we had we had our personal experiences that would indicate as much. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Uh. And on, on, on that note, um, how about we switch over to Molly Crenshaw? Yes, I I find this in in transitioning into uh, this weird conflation between existent history, urban legend, and. I would say things that resonate perhaps for unanticipated reasons. I do also want to uh, give a quick plug to our Facebook subscriber option, uh, because one of the things that we have talked about in the past, we may be talking about it soon, maybe tonight, I'm not sure, uh, we'll figure it out, uh, is some of the, um, you know, what, what we went through in mm -hmm. Mineral Springs and talking about that. And I, I'm gonna throw this out here either, either as a, a subscriber topic for tonight. Again, moving into that sometimes too controversial for public view, step with us behind the curtain to see how we do stuff, uh, how we discuss things. But in the case of the Mineral Springs, 
the possibility of interacting with a more forceful and some people would call malevolent haunting. Uh, and, and not only there, but how do you, most of the hauntings that we deal with uh, are not uh, right. negative. They are not malevolent. They, they might be somebody's a little upset or something, but uh, typically no big, no big deal. Uh, sometimes you are dealing with things that are that push back a lot harder than that. That's one yeah. topic I thought we'd cover soon, if not tonight. Sounds good. Uh, but yes, uh, the, uh, the 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 legend of Molly Crenshaw set in St. Charles, Missouri. It is important to state it is an urban legend. Yes. Uh, before we go any further. For the folks who might be in St. Charles who are versed in this history going, oh my gosh, they're going to get the history wrong and they're going to send everybody off to go hunt the ghost of the witch who is dismembered. Um, it is an urban legend. And so it didn't actually happen. But that doesn't make it any less interesting, as well as the fact that it points to a number of uh, sociocultural elements associated with St. Charles to at times lend credence to this entire idea. That, that's true. Um, the, the urban legend version of the story uh, goes back to a supposed freed Jamaica slave uh, in the late 19th century named Molly Crenshaw and that she was a voodoo practitioner who would, um, perform and sell spells and potions for local townsfolk. Uh, at this point, I mean, you basically have lifted Mary Laveau from New Orleans and transplanted her to St. Charles, Missouri. Um, the urban legend goes that, you know, there's a horrible, harsh winter um, and, you know, people are starving and uh, they blame uh, Molly and her witchcraft for, you know, bad times coming um, upon them. They storm her, her house and confront her. Um, she puts a curse on them, but she is attacked and killed. And um, various versions say that basically her body is dismembered in one, one, one fashion or another with the idea that they did that so that it would sever her power and that she could not come back from the grave, basically. Right. It's, and it's, it's just some, some historical contextualization. St. Charles has essentially been around forever uh, yeah. in terms of, of American history. Uh, the yeah. city was founded in 1769, uh, just a few years after St. Louis was founded. Um, it is, it's on the Missouri River right before the Missouri empties into the Mississippi. It was, uh, you know, it, it was St. Charles uh, is where the Lewis and Clark expedition from whence they left in 1804. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, up, up the Mississippi or up the Missouri River. And it, it, interestingly enough, St. Charles was the state capital 
of Missouri uh, from 1821 to 1826 when mm -hmm. the capital was moved to the uh, freshly constructed Jefferson City. Yes, uh, basically they had to wait for it to be constructed. So, um, and I think one thing about the urban legend is that uh, it does point to the fact that voodoo was practiced in the area. And, and we, we do know this to be true. Um, and um, on another episode, we've discussed in the past that there was a, a murder trial in St. Louis in, I believe, 1904, um, uh, accusing someone of murder by voodoo um, uh, and hoodoo. And the star witness against the defendant was another hoodoo practitioner from St. Charles. Um, that uh, practitioners and, and the subject were fairly well known in the area for throughout this time period. And so, um, you know, it, it, the story has roots in the fact that it, it was practiced um, and how it turned to this sort of this morbid version of dismemberment after, you know, mob killing. Um, uh, if anything else is evidence of a healthy respect for the voodoo practitioner and their and, powers. And, and in some way it's hmm, existence in the, the, the psychological headspace mm -hmm. of the area. It, it really, it really does. Um, now, it indicate, you know, from, from research and everything, it kind of looks like the putting a voodoo story with a name, Molly Crenshaw, probably goes back to the 1950s, is, is what they seem to think. Um, and um, sort of the earliest accounts of were them looking for her grave. Um, and the flip side is there was a Molly Crenshaw. Yes. But she was not a voodoo priestess and she was not some freed slave from Jamaica. She no. was an Anglo school teacher. She was, she was a likely very depressed 52 year old single white girl um, yeah. born in St. Louis who committed suicide by swallowing carbolic acid. In, in 1913. And actually carbolic acid, which was something that at the time you could buy at the drugstore, um, was a fairly common means of suicide. Um, I've... Uh, researched a number of stories that involved uh, suicides by carbolic acid. Um, and so in everything that I've ever um, 
read or the accounts, it, it, it is a rather gruesome death. It's, it's not quick and it's painful. And sometimes um, not enough poisonous would be taken and so that they would linger, but there was nothing doctors could do for them. And so um, if they knew something of her actual story, um, there, there may well have been tales of it being a very, you know, sort of a horrific death that may have gotten conflated with the dismemberment story. But, um, you know, it's, um, to be perfectly honest, Miss Crenshaw would probably be just as surprised as anyone else that she was um, somehow um, misidentified in this way. I, I think that is, is realistic. It, Hmm. I do think that it's difficult. We 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 seem to have have two two simultaneously in opposition points of opinion about the past. One, the the really sim symbolic uh, horrific moments tend to stand out. Things like the wars, um, uh, tragic deaths, that sort of thing. But at the same time, we really regard I think it's very easy for us to regard the past in, uh, in rose-tinted glasses, that we, we see it as a, a kinder, gentler time when people were happier because they didn't have modern conveniences like indoor plumbing, apparently, um, and, and central heat, two things that I enjoy very much and, <laughs> that, and utilize on a daily basis. And that, that it's very easy for people to get very stressed and very negative about the modern world and the modern mm -hmm. responsibilities and the pace of things. But the reality and, and the, the actual story of Molly Crenshaw is one that highlights the reality that for, in, for individuals in which things go wrong, uh, something that is also indicated in the historical record is that it some point she lost her hearing. She became deaf for an unspecified reason. And that led to her no longer being able to work as a teacher because she mm -hmm. couldn't hear. Um, and that led to her killing herself with in a really horrific manner. Um, that it was not all sunshine and roses for so many people. And again, that, that theme of the the positive things that we take for granted or the positive viewpoints we take for granted were built off of the incredible effort, in some cases, the incredible suffering of the people that went on before. Very much so. Um, and, you know, in, in an ironic turn of fate, when this became an urban legend, then people went and sought out her grave. Um, yes thinking that you know she was this voodoo priestess um but there were actually uh some grim tales that came out of that uh they uh, including an incident in the 50s where some a couple of football players went looking for the grave and apparently uh decided they were going to steal the tombstone 
admit with an untimely end. And um, according to a, a local um, professor and, and um, historian who would lecture on, on the uh, subject, um, Ron Achu, um, the boys met uh, untimely end and the sheriff's deputies found their bodies impaled on the graveyard fence. And of course it's, we, we really don't know at this point, we need to do some more digging or of course, if you're listening and you already have this information, feel free to share it with us if you would like to. Um, but we're, we're looking at just that uh, rather chaotic maelstrom of information from the 1950s onward surrounding uh, it's a scary grave uh, tread with caution or else. Yeah. And, and again, it, you know, again, the momentum of the urban legend and these tests, which, which um, at least some would say this event did happen. Um, comes about that same time period that so many of our urban legends were formed, that it really does point to broader societal um, anxieties and insecurities, you know, pushing these narratives. Um, and certainly, if, if this account is indeed accurate of the two boys dying in the search for the tombstone, I, I can see where the idea, oh, she had to have been a voodoo priestess and powers from beyond the grave, et cetera, um, gained traction. Yeah, yeah. Although entirely fictitious. And what, what do you think it is? I, I've heard a number of these types of legends. They are associated with many different graves. Um, <laughs> And, and something I was oh I was actually half listening to one late last night on YouTube that <laughs> um, because because of course I was um, involving it was in Iowa and it was a black angel um, in the in the in the cemetery uh, a black angel um, sculpture yeah, yeah statue uh -huh. and. Um, and these uh, college age students stopped in to visit the cemetery and one of the one of the students um, said something rude and touched the angel and then they were all plagued with terrible luck and had these awful things happen to them there was car accidents and um, getting thrown out of college for drinking too much and uh, failed relationships and various family members passing away and um, all of this. And finally, the, uh, the teller of the tale, the person who had shared this, I believe on Reddit originally, went and went back to the, uh, the, the cemetery and made his apologies and placed some some flowers on the grave and did not look at the angel, look the angel in the face because it gets mad when you do that and, and, and retreated. And then his luck sort of got better and so on and so forth. 
and there, there just seems to be something, especially in the, this sort of high school, late junior high into college era, uh, you know, uh, demographic that <laughs> desperately wants a, uh, apparently a, 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 a haunted statue to make up stories about, uh, a haunted grave to be afraid of, and then to test oneself by doing something rude. Well, you know, I, I guess there's a, a couple of things that kind of come to mind. So much of this comes up out of the 50s and 60s. And um, between, between World War II and Korea, and sandwiched between that and Vietnam, and it's almost as if those kids who it's like they just missed the big wars. So they didn't mm. have they they did not have the opportunity to prove themselves, quote, in that way. Uh, go looking for a way to prove their their bravery, their nobility, you know, their the the rightness of their cause, so to speak. And and if things go wrong, that there's a way to remediate it. Um, you could also look at it as a, a, a battle between fate and free will. Mm -hmm. And yeah. suddenly, suddenly you have a young population after World War II that has a lot more freedom than, than people their age had before. Um, and more free time, uh, even, go, you know, more than going to college, but more free time, really, and um, not consumed as much by just dealing with subsistence. Um, and so it's almost a battle of, so we have all this freedom, so is success with it or, you know, getting to the next goal, is it a function of their own free will or is there, you know, is fate still, you know, determining what's going on as lots in life often have been before? Um, and uh, free time often creates its own monsters. It can, it can, <laughs> and, and, and I think that it is something that is likely to have happened in the 1950s, immediately following World War II, and then moved forward in terms of consciousness, there, there is that innate introspective soul searching and nihilism that we see after World War I. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, of course, after World War I, we did have the Roaring Twenties, which was a time of economic boom. But the 1950s, certainly in North America, saw a time of economic prosperity the likes of which had never been experienced before. And so you had the, the potential for this introspective nihilism that was happening, that was being juxtaposed with extreme, being extremely well off in compared to the previous generations. 
that's true because even after World War One, you you still had you had that nihilism, but you you also had uh, even during the twenties, you you had a lot of uh, unemployment that isn't talked about. You have you have um, shanty towns of veterans who can't find jobs, uh, all while all before the depression starts, and then it just gets worse afterwards. And mm -hmm. so um, people were still preoccupied with subsistence uh, to a large degree then. Um, or then when prohibition came in, just getting drunk. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you, you don't do a lot of existential thinking usually when you're drunk, but you know, you, <laughs> there, there was more opportunity for that in the 50s, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that I think that there's mm, so some largely unspoken existential um, foment going on in the '50s as a result of these things, and and part of it being as a result of prosperity. Prosperity, but at the same time, looming, you know, the prospect of of uh, nuclear annihilation all at the same time. It's a giddy mix. It is, you know, dichotomies. <laughs> uh, on one hand, mass-produced cheese curls. On the other hand, we might all die. <laughs> exactly. Cheese While curls, we're eating mass the death. cheese curls. <laughs> cheese curls, mass death. Cheese curls. I'm, in case anybody wonders, I'm a fan of cheese curls. Uh, <laughs> Much more so than mass death. But yeah. on that token, that might be a good good point to jump over to speaking of mass death, Bloody Island. Bloody Island is fascinating to me, and especially because in modern day photos, the island looks even more depressing than it was described in the 1830s. Um, yeah. It's no longer an island because Robert E. Lee killed it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no, actually, he's, well, he entered it to Illinois is what he yes. did. <laughs> so, uh, I've, I, I have officially reached that point. Um, yes, he uh, re-diverted resources, but technically he made Bloody Island no more, so he killed it. That's that's my argument. He made it not an island. Pretty much, pretty much. And yeah. I guess for those who were wondering, Bloody Island basically uh, started for me in the 1790s, um, silt building up um, as water flow in the Mississippi altered a bit. And so you had a almost mile long new island that was causing the St. Louis Harbor to fill in. <laughs> yes, yes. Which, uh, which is bad for business in steamboats. Very, very bad for business and very untimely because we're just seeing the development of mass transit based on steamboats. Yes. And so basically they couldn't stop in St. Louis and um, 
so the city fathers asked for help and the army sent young Robert E. Lee in the, in the mid 1838, I believe, um, out to fits it. He was actually, people don't know this, but he was an engineer specialist at that point. Yeah. And um, there, there was uh, a lot of rumblings, particularly from Illinois, not to get rid of the island because it was benefiting Illinois ports. So that's when he came up with the, um, because at first the, the, the aim was to save the harbor and dredge it. So when it became a hotly contested issue, that's when he decided to basically go upstream a little bit build a couple of dikes, which anchored Bloody Island to the Illinois side, which pushed the current back to the Missouri side. And within one construction season had um, cleared out enough of the harbor that it was navigable again. And so a couple of, a couple of things that people may not be aware of. And the, the, the biggest one is that prior to extensive flood control, clearly beginning here in the 1830s, but not reaching its peak until really into the 20th century. There's various generations of river management to varying degrees of success that left to its own devices, uh, the Mississippi River and, and the, uh, the Missouri River as well, moved around a lot. Yeah, uh, it did, it, and it it flowed a lot faster than it does now. Um, uh, much so, more so in the eighteen thirties, and even later, even in the eighteen nineties, um, it it flowed very fast. And when it would freeze in the winter, uh, they would have carnivals out on the ice, and they had to be very careful because when it started, the ice started moving. They literally could be gone in five minutes downriver or plunged into the water um, to their death. So um, there are accounts of people, you know, that there literally would be thousands of people out on the ice and the people who were vendoring, they had restaurants and everything else out there uh, becoming experts at, at, at the creeks of the ice of knowing when they had to get off the ice. <laughs> and then, there, there are just elements of this. And of course, I grew up in a river town on, mm -hmm. on the Illinois River. And the elements of this entire process, a nostalgic, beautiful, genteel, layers, layered and sophisticated culture that was built sometimes on the thinnest of underpinnings that at any moment, everything that you were doing could be destroyed mm -hmm. by uh, the, the shift of the ice, uh, a single fire that devastates, that eliminates your entire downtown. 
um, a, a boiler explosion that kills everyone on the steamboat. And in some cases, in the case of at least once, and I think more than once, uh, you know, the explosion of a steamboat at, in the St. Louis port that killed people blocks away. And yeah, from the shrapnel, yeah. And <laughs> because you were the, these beautiful floating palaces that we are so nostalgic about were uh, essentially tightly wound bombs. Yes. That were loaded with, you know, anywhere between 300 and 1,000 people. And this, this push toward uh, extreme industrialization, this push toward modernity, um, but with almost no safety net whatsoever of anything, it really was a very wild uh, and sometimes very dark and dangerous time. It, it, it really was. Um, but, um, you know, it's, 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 it's very interesting to, you know, that to ponder that most people have never heard of this chapter in Robert E. Lee's life. And even had the Civil War never happened and he didn't have his military exploits on the battlefields, um, basically his actions opened up the, you know, the Mississippi all the way down four steamboats and, yes. uh, and basically these actions uh, fixing the river and the harbor there enabled the Midwest to become the breadbasket of America. Yes, yes it did. And it, this, this mass infrastructure and the, the essentially, particularly in terms of the, the farming foundation that built middle America because the, the, the great cities uh, of the Midwest were, were built upon agriculture. And uh, all of this really taking place because of Robert E. Lee. I think it is absolutely fa fascinating. And most, I would say the, the average person, even the average person familiar with Robert E. Lee would not associate with him with St. Louis. No, no. And if you go looking for, for the old maps of Bloody Island, um, the official maps were actually drawn by Robert E. Lee. So that, that's sort of interesting. But it begs the question, why was it Bloody Island? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing to understand is that these mm, islands, not just Bloody Island off of St. Louis, but uh, these islands, particularly up and down the Mississippi, were of crucial importance for one very interesting aspect of mid 19th century and earlier American culture that was technically illegal in most states. Mm -hmm. it, it was, um, it was illegal in um, both Illinois and Missouri um, after the early 1820s, uh, duly, but duly. that, but they also, it's not the only thing that happened in Bloody Island. They would also go out there for boxing matches and cockfights. <laughs> it's just and all. Steamboat, 
and steamboat pilots would settle their differences on Bloody Island. They were in arguments. <laughs> it's, it was a one-stop shop, what can we say? And it did sound, uh, there was a cottonwood break uh, that, that was on part of the island. Uh, that would have made mm -hmm. it um, a lot prettier, actually. But great 1838 description stating bloody island in the midst of the rushing stream stretches out its barren sandy shores and gloomy as the graveyard ah a graveyard and when the associations connected with its dark history are permitted to the mind the appellation is no misnomer a graveyard yeah um definitely apropos considering you know a number of people died there um all doing something they all knew was illegal um, <laughs> and basically doing it there just so that if you survived that you wouldn't face prison uh, <laughs> yes and a number of really notable individuals uh participated in this it, well, and in very early in, in um, I, I like the, the the notation from the Illinois State Archives of a duel in 1817 between two lawyers, just Thomas Benton of St. Louis and Charles Lucas of Normandy, Missouri. Um, and and you, you read that and go, okay. Uh, but what you don't realize is that's Thomas Hart Benton who became senator from missouri and, and actually was um the first senator in the united states to serve five terms um and um basically they fought a duel over insulting each other and whether or not lucas uh that lucas had uh accused bitten of not paying his property taxes <laughs> yes i think it it is my my immediate takeaway on this is that um, we men, when we're younger, do some really stupid things, but that doesn't necessarily negate us from providing we survive, going <laughs> on to very illustrious careers. Very very true. You know, of course, the the flip side is you know the joke of why why women tend to outlive men. It's because of things like this. <laughs> Fewer duels. Fewer duels. <laughs> I'm, I'm just leaving it there. I'm just leaving that there. Um, yes. Let's see. Um, but, you know, it's really some of the descriptions of the duels are really interesting because the whole idea behind the duels were, although they would say that it was to the death, generally, most of the time, neither party really wanted to kill the other, um, but again, have the last word and say, I was right. It kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about, about people's uh, perception of morality in the past. Um, and it really does come out of honor culture. Um, 
but by the 1800s, it was starting to not make as much sense. And but it still happened. And there's a great argument uh, in, interestingly enough, a book that I've almost finished and need to get back to you, uh, Honor and Violence in the Old South, uh, that the, the culture of dueling, when one of the reasons that it was being consistently being made illegal and then consistently being allowed under mm -hmm. specific circumstances and the specific circumstances were geographic locations like Bloody Island that could exist outside of a, a conceptual or a literal jurisdiction. Right. I mean, and technically that wouldn't technically that wouldn't be the case because the the line is down the center of the river. So whichever side it was on at the time, which at the time it was on the Missouri side, something mm -hmm. could be done. But practically speaking, no one wanted to mess with it. Um, and that that sociocultural impact, the the idea is described in the book, and I think it is fair because it's it is really, I think, it, it hits on one of the things that we've talked about a lot in this episode, which is holding two contrary ideas simultaneously for mm -hmm. the theoretical betterment of society. And the idea that the, um, that the, the singular combat and the strict honor cultural cultural honor rules surrounding the combat meant that in, in many cases uh duels were not fatal right and it allowed a structure for two men to transition into conflict and then transition out of conflict. You do have to bear in mind, we might be horrified at the potential of loss of life, but let's just pick the 1830s, 1840s. Um, normal transit between St. Louis and New Orleans was taking your life in your hands simply by getting on a steamboat that might blow up halfway down the river that's true or or just spring a leak and sink anyway <laughs> um, you know and in it and that duality is is kind of apparent in some of these accounts for instance there's one from um 1837 that there that rumor had floated through st louis that there was going to be a duel at a on a particular day um on bloody island to the point that a crowd went out to watch and yes. the principles didn't show. And then it, then it um, ended up appearing that basically they had waited until the crowd left and then went out and, and had their duel. Um, <laughs> and as the paper reported that uh, they waited until the coast was clear of all spectators when they went out and had, their, had the satisfaction of shooting each other unseen and unmolested. <laughs> and I think that 
that points to that duality you were talking to uh, talking about um, um, that it's um, we need to do this, but we don't necessarily need a lot of witnesses either. <laughs> well, and the the argument that's made in in honor and violence in the South is that society needs uh detractors of dueling society needs to look at this and say it is a barbaric practice that must be outlawed yeah and that society also needs dueling to essentially function as a as a as, as a pressure valve as a as a societal safety pressure valve uh, to prevent conflict from spreading beyond just the two people that it's involved with. True, and I mean, in, earlier when we were talking about Molly Crenshaw, we talk, talked about the, the environment of the 50s that gave rise to the urban legend. As you were talking, it made me think, fast forward to the 1950s, and we are, we're not dueling, but we're street racing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, you look at you look at the um, seemingly inexplicable actions of mob violence, which continue mm -hmm. has continued throughout history. Um, you you look at gang violence of a wide variety of kinds. Uh, you could make a very inappropriate and technically inaccurate argument that if they had retained dueling and not made it illegal, we might not have had the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not positive on that one. <laughs> I'm not. We might debate it later. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I, uh, I just am uh, uh, sociocultural, chaotic, neutral. I just like to toss things into the, uh, the milieu and see if they blow up um i think i think another in, interesting uh juxtaposition that illustrates exactly what you were saying too is that the function of allowing the the, the person's challenge to pick the the weapons and uh the distance and everything so basically you you know the idea was if you were going to have deadly weapons you could have a distance far enough apart that you're not likely to die uh, and yeah. there's a couple of great examples exploring how this functioned. One was an early duel um, where the person, the man that was challenged was nearsighted and he made the fatal mistake of, uh, of, um, of determining five paces for the distance. And as a result, they both died of fatal shot wounds because they were too, basically, they were too close to not miss. Um, and then the, the opposite of using that smartly actually uh, is, is probably the more most interesting duel or not duel that happened on Bloody Island that people would probably be surprised about. Yes, in 1842. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I think it is perhaps just a footnote in history. I think it's a, an important one in American history. 
which was, as far as we can tell, Bloody Island was the location for yeah. this duel between a man named James Shields, uh, who was in association with uh, the Illinois State Bank, mm -hmm. and a young Abraham Lincoln. Yes, he would have been in his early 30s at the time. And a young lawyer. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, the, the state bank had gone bankrupt, wasn't, it could no longer accept its own paper currency. And Shields was the state auditor and sided with politically with the decision to close the bank. And basically became a target for the opposition um, as the auditor. And Lincoln, perhaps not in his most diplomatic move ever, um, wrote um, an open editorial in the Sagamo Journal under a pen name of Rebecca attacking yeah. Shields for his politics and his personal foibles, including basically insulting the man's looks. Yes. Um, and um, it was published in part because Mary Todd, who he was engaged to at the time, thought it was a delightful idea, who then went on and submitted her own anonymous letter further fanning the fire. And Shields finally had had enough and demanded that the editor reveal the identity, which he did, which, you know, it just not, that would have avoided it. So he demanded a retraction by a letter and um, Lincoln refused to retract his comments and return the letter with the request that he rewrite it in a more gentlemanly fashion, which of course just made Shields more mad. And so he challenged him to a duel. Correct. And so um, of course, showing Lincoln's wit and intellect, he decided to make use of the fact that he was the challenged party and whereas you can use whatever weapons in a duel, most people use pistol, he chose uh, broadswords. Yes, of the largest size. <laughs> Quit stating I didn't want the damn fellow to kill me, <laughs> which I think he would have done if we had selected pistols. <laughs> And in terms of a strategic response, um, Lincoln said that he did not want to kill Shields, but he felt sure that he could disarm him if they were using swords. Yes. Um, Lincoln was six foot four inches tall. Shields was five foot nine inches tall. Plus, um, you know, um, Lincoln had been uh, a barefisted um, Wrestler, boxer, um, had used an axe considerably. So I'm sure he was in a much superior position 
with a sword than, than shields. So on September 22nd of that year, they arrived at Bloody Island and um, faced each other with a plank between them that neither was allowed to cross. Lincoln swung his sword high above shields to cut through a tree branch. And the act demonstrated the immensity of his reach and strength. And it was enough to show shields that he was at a fatal disadvantage. With the encouragement of bystanders, the two then called a truce. Yes. And I think what is, what is fascinating about the story uh, 20 years later, the Civil War would mean that these two men would cross paths again. Uh, Shields was a brigadier general in the Army of the Potomac. Lincoln, of course, was president. And in March of 1862, uh, Shields delivered Stonewall Jackson's only defeat at the Battle of Kernstown. And Shields was gravely wounded in the process. Uh, Lincoln nominated him for promotion to Major General, uh, symbolically bearing any ill feelings between the two men. Yes, which again, this is just another example of how many times, you know, we see in these stories in this time period, the same people crossing paths multiple times. Yes. yes. So over and over and over. <laughs> So, you know, Bloody Island certainly um, has its, um, its place in history and, and the description that you read to begin with is a graveyard certainly is apropos. I yeah. still would have loved to have passed down the Mississippi uh, on one of those steamboats watching two steamboat pilots dueling it out though. <laughs> I I would have too, it, and to say the least. And just the the uh, the environment, the atmosphere of this era and this location is just the region. I should say, not location, but the region, the atmosphere. I think it left a a mark. Uh, I think it's something that resonated. Uh, into the future. I, 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 think, I think you're accurate there, I really do. I really do. And out of that time period came um, spiritualism. Yes, uh, which of course was a, was a huge, uh, essentially mm, early modern paranormal movement. Yeah. In, in reality, um, that, that really you know, the, the Civil War threw a, a whole barrel of kerosene on that movement. Uh, it did. I mean, for those wondering, I mean, it started in the 1830s in New York with the Fox sisters, basically um, seances and um, start gaining movement and adherence and then the civil war uh just magnified the interest and the number of people interested uh trying to con you know wanting closure often for you know loss of loved ones that ended up buried far from home that they they never had a closure for and so um 
in the same way that traditionally they would have through the mourning and funeral process. And so, and, and, you know, we, we see this, really, we see this for the first time. You know, we talk a lot about railroads. We talk a lot about steamboats. We talk a lot about mass transit, sometimes associated with mass death, but predominantly mass transit. The fact that suddenly for the first time, really in world history, large numbers of people were moving very long distances. Mm -hmm. And we accept that reality. We take that reality for granted at this point. We do. It's, it's, it's very common for, you know, lots of family members to move thousands of miles away and, and we just accept, okay, that's what people do, but they didn't. And then with the Civil War, you had hundreds of thousands of men going off the war, uh, often hundreds or a thousand miles away uh, and not coming back, which was unprecedented really, uh, in particularly in North America. It, it was, and, and you, know, you don't, it, for so many generations and, and for such a, uh, to have to for it to have such an egalitarian effect you look at um large transitory armies in uh, europe mm -hmm. certainly some of that at various times to a degree we're not dealing with the vast spaces involved uh, or in the case if you go way back to uh transitory uh knights you weren't dealing with something that was impacting the quote unquote peasantry, the, the everyday people, not that there really was a middle class, but that there we're, we're, we're dealing with um, something that would have affected the aristocracy and the, the military of the aristocracy, but not the common man to this type of degree. You sure. see now these developments that certainly are very positive, uh, socioeconomic developments that certainly we consider to be um, almost a birthright at this point. The idea that uh, the common person, uh, the person without a lot of means can get in a vehicle or utilize some form of transportation and go to the other end of the country. And it's a big right. country. And do that right. with without an enormous outlay of, of, of expense. Very true, very true. And so out of all of that, a resurgence of spiritualism happened after the Civil War. And you had a lot of people cashing in as well on it uh, that were hosters and frauds. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the beginning of the spiritualist movement, uh, you had a lot of very serious thinkers um, being proponents, being supporters. Um, the, the rapid industrialization that occurred with the Civil War too um, altered a lot of perspectives. And so you had, now you had a lot of serious-minded people poo-pooing spiritualism. Um, and then as certain spiritualists 
became more obvious as frauds and they were being debunked, it, it gave a black eye to the entire movement. Um, and so um, it, uh, and then there's, there's also commentary out there that a lot, a lot of the, the people in the movement tended to be women um, yes. and they um, were drawn to it um, in part because they, or at least some, could have independence and prominence of their own that they normally would not find in society, particularly if they were not of the aristocracy. Um, and so it tended to be women against, quote, serious men of science um, that uh, in some ways helped fuel um, the women's rights movement and the suffrage movement, actually. Um, which, the, you know, people don't think about no, and, and, and I, I think it would be likely fair to say that uh, talk about un, unanticipated allies, but mm -hmm. that uh, the women's temperance movement and the spiritualism movement both saw strong elements of this contributing to uh, the suffragette movement and women's right to vote. Yes, yeah, very much so. And so um, as time went on, it became more prominent, particularly say after 1900, you had a lot of, you, you had people who were almost vehemently and professionally pursuing uh, spiritualists to out them, to debunk them, um, most famously Harry Houdini. Um, and, and Ironically with that, what a lot of people don't understand is that uh, when he started his, in show business very early on, he started as a spirit, spiritualist and, and uh, did spiritualist-based acts. And so he was very conversant in what could be done as a hoax. And so... Um, as he saw hoaxers really taking advantage of people, he, he pursued them and, and so much media attention became focused on that. That was another black eye towards the movement. And then we have a very Missouri story that comes in late in the spiritual movement that really doesn't fit any of that. <laughs> no, it does not. And something that is to me really fascinating the spiritualism movement of course began in the 1830s it really got an enormous uh cultural push immediately following the civil war because of the number of deaths involved it seems to have ebbed and flowed during the 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 intervening approximately 30 years and 20 years into to the 20th century but in the early 20th century it experienced that revival that the uh, the deaths associated with World War One seem to yeah. really push one last time before we mm, move into uh, 
what what I think most of us would think of as a a modern sensibility era. Yes, that was dominated predominantly by um, psychology and um, Freudian and Jungian um, theories. And yes, particularly so, Freud. I think. Yeah. You know. I, I think Jung, um, especially with the almost metaphysical aspects of the, the, the subconscious archetype, mm -hmm. uh, almost lends itself to some of these ideas, especially in the, the research of, of, of deep folklore and association of folklore and belief structure. But Freud in particular, we, we see Freud and um, a, a largely materialistic view that I think is is being heavily leveraged by things like corporate America, et cetera, for mm, essentially herd management of employees. Yeah, that, that, I think that's fair. And then in 1913, we have Pearl Curran. Yes. So. And... <laughs> 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 Uh, with with comparatively little hype, uh, little stage presence, little uh, any of these things that were associated with the spiritualist movement in St. Louis, uh, begins to channel someone else entirely. Yes, and 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 it, it starts out as she has a friend, Emily Hutchins, who actually was a, a very accomplished writer and had works published in national magazines, et cetera, um, that they, they were friends, their husbands were friends. And um, now Emily Hutchins was interested in the spiritualist movement. Pearl never had been. Um, and they would get together in evenings and the husbands play pinochle or in cards and in 1913, about 1913, Pearl's mother dies. And so Emily suggests that they use the Ouija board, which had a very different connotation then than it does now, mm -hmm. um, to contact her mother. And Pearl was not really that interested, didn't really think much of it. In fact, in, in writings and statements to other people, you know, pretty much nothing happened, but, you know, they would do this. Um, and then one night, so, you know, a personality started coming through, Patience Worth. Yes. And Patience is a conundrum. That she is. Um she would patience through pearl would go mm -hmm. on to write a lot and get it published and for a comparatively short period of time uh this woman not pearl not the not the the physical person uh sort of physical housewife in st louis but patience who is being channeled through her is briefly renowned in literary circles and is well published with several novels and lots and lots of poetry and a very interesting suggested history of this woman. Yes, and 
in over the course of time from 1913 to night to Pearl's death in 1937, um, a number of very serious uh, scientists will visit her, study this, watch these these sessions and so forth and not be able to explain it, um, but pretty much to, across the board, they would agree that they did not believe Pearl was making this up. And there does seem to be an enormous amount of documentation about that and the channeling became more and more sophisticated. It became more and more in-depth. It became more complex and transitioned even away from the Ouija board where Pearl would just be sharing these things. Yes, and automatic writing as well um, at times. But they would also say that during these times that Pearl would maintain her own persona, um, and that, and Pearl was, had limited education, um, and studying the linguistics and the information that was adduced, um, these very, you know, serious, uh, observers did not believe that Pearl had the faculty to make this up and come up with all these things and they the writings flowed so quickly and changed subjects that uh, with details from different time periods from the present to antiquity um, they did not believe it was a hoax correct which i think is probably the most um existentially unsettling aspect of the story because it really stands apart from a great deal of the commercial spiritualist movement very very much so very much so um and um the editor of these the st louis globe democrat uh casper yost um um observed and, and persuaded them to um, let him publish some of the sessions and he ended up uh, writing a book, Patients Worth a Psychic Mystery, um, that um, became very popular. Um, and ironically, the Kearns did not benefit financially from this. Correct. Which That's another is, thing. It, it is. And for people who aren't familiar with the, uh, the case, essentially, is that Patience Worth, the woman who is said to have channeled herself through this 1913-era St. Louis housewife, uh, claimed to be an unmarried English woman who had uh, immigrated to Nantucket Island in the late 1600s and was killed in an Indian raid. Yes. 
and that she was originally uh, from Portisham in Dorsetshire, England. And that her mother had worked as a seamstress for a nobleman family and that she had been buried on Nantucket and that a tree had grown out of her remains. Nice touch. I, I, I yes. like that. <laughs> so, you know, the, in, in uh, Pearl's story, of course, is very complex afterwards. Now, the, there is the aspect that her friend uh, was a spiritualist who was well-established in literary circles. There's mm -hmm. the, you know, playing devil's advocate here that possibly her friend saw an opportunity to work this out and was was somehow ghostwriting, pun intended, uh, ghostwriting uh, and, and helping Pearl um, basically put all of this together. Right. But by the same token, it, uh, before too long, Pearl and her husband kind of dismiss Emily and she's not involved anymore. And Mr. Curran takes notes. He's the one who takes notes in shorthand. Yes. of what, what transpires and uh, uh, ironic you know ironically they um, you know they kind of stayed away from you know the, the psychologists etc that would kind of go after them when you know the examine this but they um they did allow uh charles corey who was the chairman of philosophy at uh, washington university in st louis to be present at some of the sessions and he claimed to have solved the mystery that basically it, it could be explained by multiple personalities Although he had to concede that um, he couldn't explain how Pearl maintained her own personality while, pa while patience is dictating, <laughs> which would and indicate that per multiple personalities were not occurring. It, it also bears in mind, for, again, for individuals who are not familiar with this particular case that patience is, is not just dictating a couple of journal notes here or there she's dictating entire novels yes and numerous other you know poems short stories everything over four million words i mean uh, a lot of output yes and i i found it particularly interesting Patient's first novel was published in 1917, uh, titled The Sorry Tale. The story is uh, of one of the thieves crucified with Jesus. And the next year, uh, the Joint Committee of Literary Arts of New York named Patience Worth one of the nation's outstanding authors. And that May, May of 1918, Holt published Patience's second novel titled Hope True Blood. I love this, the tale of a fatherless girl in Victorian England. And it was written in a 19th century voice, dramatically different from the sorry tale. 
uh, a fact that Pearl explained by Patience's urge to widen her audience. <laughs> because when you're a 15th century ghost working through someone else, you really want to improve your demographic uh, appeal, which I rather appreciate actually. And I should note um, that a lot of the information that we have in, in this particular regard, there's a number of sources online, though the one that ha had some great context, context uh, is from smithsonianmag.com um, under their arts and cultures section, the article titled Patients Worth Author from the Great Beyond, just in terms of source citation. So outside of this, I, I, I was peripherally aware of this particular case uh, prior, but not to this level before preparing for tonight's episode. What I, I'm still, I'm still, I've not decided, but I can tell you that there's something really magical about this idea and certainly something interesting in the sense that a, a voice from beyond the grave being so markedly human, mm -hmm. uh, as well as, as the implication that this person was obviously a force of nature before death and continue to be a force of nature after death. Exactly, I, you know, I'm, I, I haven't quite decided myself I, you know, one thing I do find very interesting about this is that you know, we discussed how the debunkers went after the spiritualists and um, ironically, uh, Pearl allowed one, one of the most preeminent um, debunkers into her life uh, and, and that was Frank, uh, Walter Franklin Pierce um, he um, had been a Episcopalian uh, and Methodist minister at one point. He was an amateur magician, and he had a PhD in psychology from Yale. Um, and uh, he was fascinated by abnormal psychology um, and worked, um, he actually worked with Harry Houdini to expose fake mediums and he studied Pearl and patients for 10 years and um, he ended up writing a book and praising patients and um, so the so although he basically was a professional debunker he ended up basically <laughs> accepting patients on face value yes so you know i ultimately we, we leave it up to each individual to do their own research arrive at their own conclusions i think it is fascinating and, and an interesting peek behind the curtain through the veil potentially mm -hmm. uh, to just mm, really deal with some of those difficult existential questions this one being mm, things are not nearly as simple uh, as we oftentimes like to make them out to be. 
that that's that's very true and um and like i said i you know i i'm not sure that i'm quite to mr prince's conclusion of that uh, patients uh, uh came through on our own um fully formed i don't know but you do have to wonder there there was enough examination by enough very serious observers that um, could not explain it, that it, it really does make you wonder. And going into Pearl's personality and, and life, she does not appear to be someone that could have successfully faked this, particularly over the course of 20, 24 years. <laughs> I think that's I think that's very reasonable. I think that's very fair. So it is a, it is an open-ended debate, but it's something that I think the only sad aspect of the case is that the the cultural focus, the literary focus um, into the 1920s, into the 1930s, so on, really simply moved away from this particular situation. And I, I do think it's interesting that there wasn't a point of debunking, there wasn't a point of, uh, of refuting the evidence, there wasn't a point, it just sort of simmered away and moved out of public consciousness. Pretty much, almost, you know, basically couldn't poke it with a stick any longer, so it, it, it lost its, appeal in that regard, um, but never able to invalidate it either. No, and, you know, and then the, from the, uh, some documented and some anecdotal reports, uh, patients continue to communicate through Pearl up until Pearl's death. Yes, and um, so, uh, as far as we know, Patience has not found a, another channel, um, uh, but uh, her words are collected into 29 volumes. Wow. <laughs> and that might be a, a point to end on to ponder. <laughs> yes, it is worth the, the existential questions. This Celtic Festival of Light evening of uh, 2023. We do wish yes. everyone a very happy Emerald. Yes, we do. And um, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for bringing um, the Dark Ozarts to everyone. And on our next episode, we're going to be discussing paranormal history of the Northern Ozarks and more. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>